Well, now there are several things that Job gleaned from the trials and tests that he went through. You see, going back to the original theme of the book, the theme is, Why do the righteous suffer? In view of the fact that the Bible says in Galatians 5, or Galatians 6 rather, As a man sows, so shall he also reap. In view of the fact that over and over again the Bible says that the righteous shall be blessed and the wicked shall be cursed, why then, in the case of Job, was the righteous cursed? And why then is it upon the face of the earth tonight that many wicked appear to be blessed? There's one thing in particular tonight that we want to emphasize, which I believe will help us in our walk, and that is that Job... Through the trials and tests that he went through, he learned something in the sense that his trials had an educational value. And trials do have an educational value. They teach you something. Now, we're not implying by making that statement that you should just immediately think then, like a lot of the people do in the system, when they come into a negative circumstance, a trial or whatever, that they just raise their hands and say, oh, well, God's trying to teach me something. The way to learn something is to overcome through the trial. Just because they may say, oh, well, God's trying to teach me something and submit to the sickness, the disease, the poverty, or whatever, as if it's God's will, when in reality it isn't. Yet, let's face it tonight, there are things that we learn through trials that without trials we wouldn't learn. One thing is imparted to us through trials and tests, and that is wisdom. I'd like you to turn to Proverbs chapter 3, because wisdom is something that is very important to the believer. You might say tonight, well, I think that of important things, the abundant life message, that's important. Divine health, that's important. Knowing and understanding and believing in the promises, all that's very important. Whereas silver and gold or the abundant life might be important to us tonight. Really, silver and gold is much secondary or even lower than that compared to a lot of other things like wisdom. You'll never run the race with your pockets full of gold. That just weighs you down. That's right. And he says, lay aside all those weights and sins that would be so easy to beset you. Wisdom. Oh, we can say tonight, oh, I don't think wisdom's any big deal. But read just a few places in the Proverbs where he tells us that blessed is the man that finds wisdom because with wisdom all those other things come. Proverbs 3.13. Happy, or I like to say blessed is the man that finds wisdom. The man that gets understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof of fine gold. She's more precious than rubies and all the things that thou canst desire. Think tonight. What is there that you would really desire more than anything else, whether it be in the material realm or whatever, of all the things that you could desire, they are not to even be compared unto wisdom. They don't even line up. They don't even come close to the importance of having wisdom in your walk. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is as a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retains or keeps her. He's not talking about a woman. He's talking about wisdom. The Lord by wisdom has founded the earth, and by understanding have they established the heavens. And then there are other places, of course, throughout the Word of God that speak of wisdom. Proverbs 4 is another one. Proverbs 4, verse 5. 
Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor, and thou, when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. I have led thee in right paths. When thou goest, thy steps shall not be hindered. And when thou runnest, thou shalt not stumble. Take hold of instruction and let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. See, he centers everything that is important to us around wisdom. The getting of wisdom. And it would be a blessing if we could get wisdom the way Solomon got wisdom. When God said to Solomon, what is it, Solomon, that you desire above anything else? I'll let you have anything you want, the riches, the wealth, all the things that are there. Solomon said, Lord, I'll take wisdom. And he got it. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that it was supernaturally dropped into him, but it could have easily been, because it could have been as like a gift of the Spirit. But with us, the word of wisdom is not the wisdom that God's speaking about. It's not a charismatic gift of the Spirit that you get upon receiving the baptism and it's sovereignly disposed given unto you. Wisdom is something that doesn't come automatically. Wisdom is something that you get through the trials, the tests, and the experience. And if you don't have wisdom tonight when it comes to spiritual things, then all you'll do is talk words. You'll just talk faith. You'll just talk how that you believe this and you believe that, but without wisdom and discernment imparted to that word that you know, you really won't know it like you ought. Wisdom is the principal thing. It gives you life, health, victory, riches, everything that you need. But wisdom doesn't come automatically. Now he gives us a few places to show us how that wisdom comes. Like in Proverbs chapter 3, we are told, or Proverbs 13 rather, in verse 14, we are told some of the ways that wisdom comes. Proverbs 13, for example, in verse 1. A wise son heareth, his father's instruction, but a scorner hears not rebukes. So it comes by the hearing of the word, and not just hearing it with your physical ear, but getting it down into your heart. Proverbs 29 and verse 15 talks about how that wisdom comes by training. Sometimes the only way that we get wisdom is through the school of hard knocks. Or we could call the school of the rod. Proverbs 29:15 The rod and reproof give wisdom. We thought they just gave pain and discomfort. No. Trials and afflictions, sufferings, not just physical, but all types, they give wisdom. But a child left to himself bring his mother to shame. So wisdom is what we desire and wisdom doesn't come automatically. Wisdom is something that comes through trials, tests, instruction, chastisement, disciplines of the Lord, and so on. The one thing that Job gained through his trials and affliction was greater wisdom concerning spiritual things. He gained a greater wisdom. He gained, he gained a practical wisdom. And this is what you and I need, is a practical wisdom. You see, it's one thing to say tonight, I know that Numbers 23:19 is in the Bible. I know that God is not a man that he should lie. You can confess that and say that till you're blue in the face. I know it, I know it, I know it. 
But it's only when God allows the trials and tests to come along that you begin to experience, you begin to put into practice that word, and as you overcome in those areas, that's when you can say, I know, I know in my knower, God is faithful and true to his word, and that he can't fail, and that he's not a man that he should lie. And you don't, it's not saying it so that it, you know, is just something you say, but it's said with meaning, and it's said expressed from the heart. It's not enough to just say, I know that Philippians 4.19 is in the Bible, that God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But it is the trials and tests when you're confronted with them, that as you overcome them, then this is that practical wisdom that's imparted. You know that word. And you're wise and spiritually wise when it comes to those promises. It doesn't necessarily have to be riches. It's like a building, for example. I've had people that have come to this church and when they pull in the driveway the first time they've looked at that big Century 21 sign out on the grounds. And I've had people say to me, what are you going to do if that guy sells that building on you? I've always replied back, well, God's not going to sell this building until we're done with it. And if it got sold, that just means we're done with it and God would just have something better. But you know, you can say that you could say that. I could say that with small motives. Oh, I know God would supply with another one. But it's only if the sign went down and the phone call rang and said, Brother Green, or he wouldn't call me that. <laughs> Mr. Green, if I'd even get that much, Mr. Green, we sold the building. You've got 30, 60 days to get out or whatever. Then after believing God and trusting God and believing for a new building, and you see, that's no little thing because they're not on every street corner. Yet God is faithful and true to his word. And as you press through and overcome such a trial, when you got done, you would know that God would give you, supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We experienced it last Sunday to a small degree, getting a phone call at five minutes after eight saying we can't meet in the building. And when you only have maybe 10 or 15 minutes to do something, God has to work in that short of time. It would have been easier for a lot of people maybe just to throw up their hands and say, well, we just can't meet today because there was a flood blocking the building. But the children of Israel didn't throw up their hands and say, well, we can't cross over into Canaan today because there's a flood crossing our path. They didn't say, well, we'll just have to wait till the river gets low and dries up and then we can cross over on dry ground. Faith presses through. And when you don't know way, way, way off in advance, when you get short notice and you know that faith doesn't take no for an answer, but faith presses through, then it's a matter of seeking the mind of the Lord and you have to do it quickly. And when he gives you something that you believe is from him, you just press on through until you finally get a yes. And that's what we had to do. We got three no's before we got a yes. We actually got four no's before we got a yes. But faith doesn't give up. Faith says, we're pressing through. We got no one no from one lady. She said to call somebody else. We called somebody else. And the woman said, well, I don't know. It could be rented out. You'll have to call so-and-so. Called over to so-and-so, and the phone didn't answer. Called back. Well, you have to call so-and-so. Called so-and-so, and the phone didn't answer. That's three no's in a row. Most temptation would have been to say, is there sin in the body? God doesn't want us to meet. Throw up your hands. And upon the fourth phone call, the individual said, well, 
All I've got is a key. I don't know if we can let you in. We could let you in, but what happens if somebody else wants the building? I just don't know. I said, well, I do. You let us have the building and it'll work out. God's faithful. He said, all right, I'll go over there. And of course, you know, he unlocked the building and nobody else showed up. God had that day reserved for us. Because they use that quite a bit over there in Sundays. And not only that, but if I remember right, back several years ago, when we inquired to the renting of that building, they wanted like, I believe it was like $75 a day to use it, and they gave it to us for nothing. <laughs> Amen? So God's faithful. But, you know, it's one thing where we could have said last Saturday, oh, I know God would give us a building if we needed one. But you see, now I know. You see what I'm saying? Now I know that God would give us a building because He's already done that. And that's the difference between saying I know and I know. And that's where it's at. You don't really know unless God's in a trial. You just know it's the intellectual head knowledge. That doesn't mean anything. And others have had trials and tests. Brother Bud could know that Philippians 4.19 is in the Bible, Matthew 6.33. But when they were confronted with that no, 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 no that kept coming uh, forth to get on the plane to go to Hawaii, with only a few minutes, if I remember him telling me right, the plane is going to leave in like 10 or 15 minutes. And if you've ever gone on a plane, that's not long, friends. They're boarding plane. They're sitting on the plane at that time, and engines are firing up. They're ready to go. It's just a matter of moving the ladder away, and they go. And he said all they heard was, no, 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 we won't take your check, we won't take your money here, and all he's got is a check. And the amount that cost to fly was not something you carry around in your wallet, and so what do you do? You just throw up your hands and say, well, we tried. No, faith says, like what he said, faith doesn't take a no. And it presses through, and it finds a way. And that's what he did. He could say, well, I know Philippians 4.19, but he knows in a more meaningful way, I know that Philippians 4.19 is true. See, God has allowed the trials and the tests to come our way as opportunities for us to overcome so that we can know in our knowers. It's like we could say, I know Psalm 91 protects me. And I know that if I got in a car accident or whatever, I know that God would keep me alive and I know that God would supply and bless back financially and everything would be restored. And I just, no, no, no. Because you know, the world is so dependent upon insurance. That's all they talk about. That's where their peace, their joy, and their security lies is in their insurance premium. That's true. We had to have our our sewer system rebuilt this week. And while we were standing there, there was a man that was using the backhoe to dig up everything, and the neighbor across the road was, well, concerned a little bit because there was a natural gas line that ran right through the front, and he was going to have to cross it as well as very close to it. And while he was talking, him and several others were discussing what would happen if he hit that gas line, and I don't know whether he was insinuating everything would blow up the smithereens or at least cut off Jerry City with its gas supply. Well, they comforted themselves by saying, oh, well, Brother Mike, they didn't call me that. Mike's probably got a good homeowner's policy to take care of such a thing. Isn't that right? I said, I've got a tremendous homeowner's policy. 
But you see, they're all resting in the fact that they've got a premium tucked away in a drawer somewhere. Well, you could just rest in the fact tonight that you've got a promise tucked away somewhere here in the Word, Psalm 91, but you don't really know. You really, really, really don't know that Psalm 91 is true and that God will keep you alive and that God will supply those things that you need unless something would happen where they would go. We always said when we heard people like Brother Freeman share how that he lost a Cadillac or two. Oh, I know God's faithful because he's faithful to Brother Freeman. I remember hearing a sister and brother here in the body hitting a telephone pole at several, at like 55 mile an hour and losing the car. And saying in essence, well, I know that God's faithful because they're alive and they're driving another car, so God's faithful. But you see, it's only when you get the opportunity yourself. When you're flying around in a trailer and it flips over on its side, and then you can stand before people and say, I know, I know that God's word is true, because I'm alive standing here preaching. And that the thing that we lost has been totally restored. And it has. So you see, I can say tonight, I know. That's spiritual wisdom imparted to each one of us. But it's only by the trial. So if you run from the trial, you'll never know. You never really will know. That's why you can't run from any trial, because God has ordained that the trials would would give us that practical insight on the Word. You can know not only that God is faithful and true to His Word, but by the trials and tests, you can have wisdom imparted to you when it comes to like the tongue, for example. You can say, I know Proverbs 6.2 is in the Bible, and it says that we're snared with the words of our mouth and taken captive at the things that we say when we confess something out of harmony with the Word. You can know by sometimes when God allows the trials and tests or other things, you can know people whom you should avoid or whom you should fellowship with because you know their character and makeup. And there's just some people I wouldn't want to be around in time of testing and trial. Because I'll tell you what, if I'm going through a trial, I praise God I can have somebody next to me like my wife who will just climb all over me. To stay in the faith. Not that I'm implying like I've got a big problem with doubt and I need it. But it's just a whole lot better to have someone climbing all over you to hang in there than to have somebody pitying you and sympathizing you and saying, oh, well, maybe you don't have the faith. Well, maybe next time you can try this out or whatever. It's a whole lot better to have someone just stand there and provoke you on the works of righteousness. And I've learned that sometimes if you're just around people in time of testing and trial that if they're not being positive, you learn by experience just to stay away from them. Just to keep things to yourself. Just to be quiet and not get around. It isn't just in trials, but you learn through experience. You can know in the Bible that there are places like Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 7 which speak of how that a wise man chooses wise friends and companions of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13.20. Well, let's look at another one first of all. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 7 says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. And then comparing that with Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20 He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. 
Sometimes the way to get that word into your heart is to go through a trial or a test to where when foolish things start coming out of the mouth of people, suggesting going to the arm of the flesh, suggesting going to the doctors or the finance companies or whatever, after you go that way and you lose your joy, you lose your faith, you lose your victory, then when you go through the next trial, if you're standing next to one that is standing there saying, don't give up, brother, sister, hang in there, God's faithful, quoting the strong word of God and not backing off, even though sometimes it makes you mad that they aren't pitying you and sympathizing with you after it's all over, you can say, I know that a wise man chooses wise friends. And it isn't just saying, oh, I know the Bible says that. You can say, I know the Bible says that. But wisdom is a knowing it in your knower, in your heart. It is getting it from here to here. It is making it a living reality. And that's what God is trying to see, that it only it's only the trials and tests. Sometimes it isn't start out anyways like a trial, but you know, fellowshipping with people. I've read where many men of God that were mightily used of God were known for being loners. Luther was one that was kind of a loner. He talked about how that he would pray three and four hours a day. I don't know how a guy could pray three and four hours a day and be chatting and giddy-getting in fellowship all the time with people. You know what I mean? Wigglesworth was one. I may have shared this the other day, but he was one in his book where he writes how that Two men took off work to come and visit him, I think for a couple of weeks. And when they came, he didn't entertain them with great fancy dinners and taking them out to the local attractions in the community to show them the town. Why, when they went out to the park, they wrote how that they were practically snubbed because he was out ministering, sharing the word, laying hands on the sick and praying for people. And they came along with him, but he hardly had anything to do with them. Because they were, he was like a loner. Now there's a place where you can become so spiritually uh, caught up with your own life that all you're doing is just taping it and booking it and praying it that you don't have any fellowship with the brothers and sisters. That's maybe the opposite extreme to crawl off in a cave somewhere. But I've seen only hurt come from people that are constantly fellowshipping with one another or on the phone with one another because you find people's faults and the next thing you know you're criticizing you're talking evil you're speaking about them and so on it just happens friends and you learn you ought to learn by that because the tongue is something that God says the perfect man will know how to bridle but you see it's only like trials like taking a vacation with people we learned that whenever we took a vacation with brothers and sisters in the body it usually ended up to be a jesting. There's always jesting that came for Now that's true. Making a crack or a joke about this or that that you see in the person. Or maybe it's just people getting critical afterwards about why that sister's always washing her kids too much or when they go out camping, they don't cook like we do or when they do this or that, they don't do this or that. Believe me, familiarity breeds contempt. And so God has allowed that or allows trials in some things to what? Teach you to be careful, to teach you practical wisdom. And so it's the trials and the tests we're told that instructs us, that gives us knowledge that it is what he speaks of over in Proverbs chapter 29, that it's the rod and reproof that give instruction and wisdom. Now there are three particular things that Job learned then 
through the trials and through the tests, which are an example for us. For example, over in chapter 13, we find that, number one, Job learned through the trials and through the tests that he went through what an abiding faith was. Now, don't let those words just skip by us. Okay, Job learned what an abiding faith was. No, Job didn't learn what an abiding faith was. Job learned what an abiding faith was. He learned what faith was called to abide in. Because Job didn't have anything that he could have abode in except the Lord. And that's all. And so Job learned through that experience, just like only you sometimes through those experiences, that faith can only rest itself and have confidence in one thing, and that's Jesus. And if it's abiding in anything else, it's not faith. Not the kind of faith that God's trying to develop in the body. Job chapter 13, this is what he said in verse 15. He made this statement, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. You know, they're accusing him of being a hypocrite. Hear diligently my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold now, I have ordered my cause and I know that I shall be justified. Well, now he knew before that he was going to be justified, but he knows now in a more meaningful way that he shall be justified because he knows that his faith is still holding firm and fast with no external support. He knows that he will abide and that he will be justified because he has a faith that's not based upon anything external. Now, I find a lot of people do not have an abiding faith because they've got their faith in other things. In John chapter 15, we read about what an abiding faith is to abide in. John chapter 15. What is our faith to abide in? Well, I've already said it, but look at the wording here because it's plain as you can get it. That the type of faith that God is trying to develop in this body is not one that is encouraged because, well, when it comes to healing, things are gradually getting better. The pain is easing up. The bleeding is stopping. There's a scab growing over the wound. It's because the lump has gone down. It's because you feel better today than you did yesterday. And that's just where a lot of people's faith is at. They are encouraged. They can rejoice. They can say, praise God, I'm healed because they feel better or they look better or things are improving. But that's abiding in the improving circumstances and not abiding in the Lord. Job didn't have anything to abide in except the Lord. And he said, I know I shall be justified. And he had nothing to back it up with. Nothing to lean upon. It'd be easy for you to say, I know that I'll receive the manifestation of that car. And then, in reality, what you're saying is, because God's blessed the works of my hands, and after all, my job is prospering, and all my bills are paid, and I'm getting a bank account that's getting a little bit of money put in it. But what would happen if you had no job? What would happen if you had no bank account? You know, it doesn't take faith if you've got the money in the bank. All you have to do is go out and withdraw the money. That ought to be obvious. 
But what happens when you don't have any money and when you don't have anything that it would appear like it's even getting more positive, can you still say the statement like Job did, I know that in his case I shall be justified, but in our case it might be, I know that that which I have claimed will come to pass. It's only the trial and the test when God allows it that we can make these statements if we are being victorious through them that we can make these statements and they're made meaningful. But Job learned an abiding faith. What did he abide in? Well, he abode in the Lord. That's all that he had. And that's what our faith is to abide in. John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit is taken away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are cleaned or pruned through the word which I've spoken unto you. For those that don't have any teaching, they never have any trials because God uses the word to prune them, the word to clean them. If we weren't here teaching tonight on trials and you didn't have the word on trials and God didn't allow some trials, you wouldn't be pruned. But look out. The word in the last few months has been coming forth about enduring, that the just shall live by faith, to overcome in trials and tests. Don't sit out there with a gloomy face and say, why do I have trials tonight? You ought to know why. Instead of getting down in the dumps about that, why don't you rise up and say, praise God, I'm going to rise up and be victorious through this thing so that I can get a good report and overcome. So what if your job isn't the best place to work at? It's a job. Would you like to go with nothing? Then you'd have something else to worry about. Or be tempted to worry about. Don't grumble and complain at your circumstances. God has been sending forth the word faithfully to prune you and clean you. We knew it was coming. We were studying on Job on vacation. So we started off with a, started off the bat on the right foot. Some practical (laughs) insight. That's right. But look what he says concerning the trials. Abide in me. Don't abide in the fact that things are getting better. Because with Job they didn't get better. In fact, with Job they just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And that's what faith does. Job learned what an abiding faith was all about. You're not, faith doesn't abide in anything but Jesus. Your faith or your intellect abides in things that are positive, but Faith will abide in in Jesus. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them, gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That's the original. But note with me that the stress throughout this is abiding in me, abiding in me, abiding in my words. And there are just multitudes of Christians today that are not abiding in Jesus. They're abiding in external things. They're always trying to prove the Bible. 
They're always trying to dig something up over here or dig something up over there to try to prove that God's Word is true. That the land of Ur or Uz existed over in this place or that place. Or people will base their faith upon the fact that they looked at or they touched Noah's Ark. I know God is because I touched Noah's Ark. Well, praise God, go touch Noah's Ark. But you can know Noah's Ark exists and still be dead in your sins. Because you don't abide in the fact that Noah had an ark. We knew Noah had an ark before they could find the ark. They don't have to find the ark to tell me Noah had an ark. You have to know that Noah had an ark because we're abiding in the Word. We're abiding in Him. And then others. Well, we're trying to prove the shroud. Well, what's that going to prove? Well, that'll prove that that was Jesus' grave clothes or whatever. So what? Big deal. The Catholics are always putting their faith in relics. Well, that's not it, friends. It's not abiding in the relic. It's not abiding in the shroud. It's not abiding in Noah's Ark. It's not abiding in something that was dug up. It is what abiding in me. And yet, we're talking to you out there tonight that maybe laugh and chuckle at shrouds and Noah's Ark. And I'm not laughing at Noah's Ark. I don't. I believe it's over there, but it's really no big deal to me. Whether we found it or not wouldn't really mean a thing. My faith is not made stronger tonight because I found it. My faith in Noah lies in the fact that I'm abiding in, his, in the word that God's given me about Noah. But yet we could still have some here tonight that are abiding in visions and dreams and revelations. Well, I know that this is going to work out because I've had a vision or a dream or somebody in the body was on a long fast and they had a revelation about my situation. Dear friends, God wants you to get delivered from that. He wants you to abide in Him. And the fact that He's faithful and true to His Word. And the fact that He's God and whatever He does is good, righteous, and just, and that He cannot fail. And quit looking at outward circumstances. Faith doesn't base its faith, or it doesn't base itself upon feelings, outward circumstances, how things are improving, or how things are working out. The kind of faith that God is developing in the overcomer is one that one can say with Job, though everything is going all backwards, though he slay me, though he went the rest of the way, he only had just an inch to go and the devil could have killed him. His eyeballs were eaten out with worms. He was going through miserable pain and agony. He had nothing in the material realm. The only thing he had left was his wife, and even she had dropped out of the arena of faith at that point. And he just added... It doesn't matter if I would die tonight. I still know that my Redeemer liveth and that I shall be justified. I know that I shall be redeemed. I know that I shall be justified. That's faith, friends. But what's it based upon? Well, it's not based upon anything but the fact of Hebrews 11.6 that God is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You don't have to. You shouldn't have to have anything tonight to prove to you that God is, and that God is a rewarder of them that seek Him, other than His Word and the fact that He's God. And if that's the kind of faith that He wants to develop in you, well, you say, how do I get that faith? Through the trials and the tests. When God allows you to go through some trial, and there is nothing on the outward that would appear to make things work out a little bit easier, or alleviate the pain or make things work out quicker, that instead of getting discouraged and doubtful and allow fear to come in, you say with Job, 
In chapter 13, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's mature faith. And it doesn't matter how it may sound. You know, you can say, well, God's not a killer. That's not a very good thing to confess. You confess the principle of it. Even if God were to go the rest of the way and make things like a Job's trial, where I have nothing, I'm still hanging on to the faith. I'm not going to let go. Because why? Because I know that I will be vindicated and I know that God's word will be brought to pass because he's not a man that he should lie. But you can't, friends, say that tonight without a trial. And it's when the trial comes along, this is your opportunity so that it becomes a living reality. So that you say, I know that I shall be justified. So Job learned what an abiding faith was all about. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. He got to know whom God was and that he was faithful to the keeping of his word, no matter what circumstances may indicate. And it doesn't matter. There is no way that this can be developed in you apart from some trials and tests so that you can hang on to God and see his faithfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Well, we'll look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the land of Pharaoh, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God. He is the faithful God, which keepeth the covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But how do you know that he is God, the faithful God, the one which keepeth the covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations by overcoming in the trial? As you overcome in that trial, after you've seen God's faithfulness vindicate your faith, you can say, I know that Numbers 23:19 is true. But if you give up somewhere along the line and get negative and fall to the faith, you'll never know that. Which leads to the second thing that Job learned through his trials. Job not only learned what an abiding faith was or what faith abode in, he also came to a deeper understanding that God was his Redeemer. And this is over in Job chapter 19. He came into a greater understanding that God was his Redeemer. And we're not thinking tonight that he came into a deeper understanding that that God was God and that God forgave sinners and that God, through the atoning of the blood, saved people and all that, that he was Redeemer. No, Job came into a knowledge of the fact that he was his Redeemer. And with the knowledge of the fact that he was his Redeemer came an assurance to Job that he would never be plucked off the earth or would never be taken out of the hand of God, but that would experience eternal life and even the resurrection. Because he came into a deeper understanding and knowledge that God was not just the Redeemer, but his personal Redeemer. And while we say tonight, well, I know that Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, yet there is a deeper abiding knowing that you should have about the Lord that you are in his hands and that no one, not even Satan, can take and pluck you out of the power and presence of God, that you are eternally secure tonight. God doesn't want any of his children walking around 
worrying and fretting and being full of doubt and fear as to whether or not they're saved. He wants you to know tonight, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that you are in his kingdom, that you are saved, that you are in his army, that he is the author and the finisher of your faith, but you won't know that unless you overcome the trial. If you're flunking your trials, you don't know that. Flunking a trial raises questions and doubt concerning your faith. And when questions and doubts arise concerning your faith, you can't personally in yourself say, well, I know that I shall be justified because scriptures keep coming up like Matthew 7. Not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father. Scriptures like in Matthew 12 where he speaks, or Matthew 10 rather, where he speaks about it's not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, or there it speaks about how that is he that endures unto the end. The same shall be saved. Passages like that keep coming up. And without a foundation where you can say, well, I know that that does not apply to me because I've overcome this and I've overcome this and I've overcome this and seen God's faithfulness in this and when God allowed this, we overcame it. What we're saying is that trials give you a personal understanding that God is your Redeemer and because He is your Redeemer, He is your Shepherd and as your Shepherd, He will never allow you to be plucked out of the flock. But that only comes through the experience of overcoming trials. Job chapter 19. This is what Job expresses. You see, in all that this is happening, keep in mind we're into the third phase of the trials and tests that Job's going through. The first phase was, phase was he lost all his material wealth. The second phase was he lost his physical health. The third phase was all of his friends started coming along and they were accusing him of being a sinner. In fact, you can see right here, this is right after where Bildad speaks. And he makes statements like in chapter 18, verse 5, Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of the fire shall not shine. Verse 17, His remembrance shall perish from the earth, and he shall have no name in the streets. He shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. You know, talking about into Hades or hell. They that come after him shall be astonished at his day, as they were, as they went before, were affrighted. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. He's accusing Job of being a sinner. And every time Job would have these individuals trying to condemn him and telling him that he was a sinner and that he needed to repent, he would rise up in faith that much stronger, saying, "I don't know why God is not standing here defending my cause." rebuking you and showing you where you're wrong, but you are wrong. And he had his enemies to contend with, and he had God to contend with because God was being silent, but he was not being defeated by the trial. The more the trials came along, the more he just kept growing and maturing onto a deeper personal understanding of who his maker was. And that he not only had an abiding faith in his maker, but that there was a personal relationship there with his maker that his faith was going to gain him an assurance that could never be taken away. He makes these statements. Verse 22, Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? You know, he's saying God's persecuting him because he's quiet. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were recorded in writing, that they were cut with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Some have suggested that, well, after making that statement, Though he slay me. He's saying that if I were to die today, 
if my words were carved in a rock and placed at my head. Not that we're suggesting tombstones are all right. But he's saying that even if he died, if they were carved forever in the rock so the people could see it, Job was innocent. If he at least had a rock that would stand before him. Or that would stand there and say he was innocent. Because nobody else but Job is saying he's innocent. If the rocks would crowd and help him. Then look at this. This is faith. For I know that my Redeemer, and these words stick out, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He hasn't even got any eyes at this point. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. But you say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me, and so on. But the point that he's saying here is he's speaking about the resurrection. He's talking about seeing God, seeing his Redeemer. He is expressing to us by this that he has a greater assurance of the fact that he is saved, that he is righteous. That he is in the Redeemer's hands. And it points to like what is said over in John chapter 10 and verse 27 of the assurance that you and I are called to have. John chapter 10 and verse 27. Job is not saying, I know my Redeemer lives. Job is saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and I know it so much that I'm going to be standing there justified in his presence on the day of resurrection when he stands upon the face of the earth. And these things were all given unto him as he's in trial and testing. In the midst of trials and tests, a way to know that you're overcoming is that through them you should know in your knower. There should be a greater knowing being developed in that God is faithful and true to his word and that as you overcome that trial, you can say, I know that I am in the kingdom because I've overcome John 10:27 says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. Because my Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The way to have assurance, and God wants us to have it, is by overcoming the trials, the tests, the things that you have to go through and as you overcome them victoriously it's like a child going to school if a child going to school starts out and gets an A plus first test A plus second test A plus third test A plus fourth test it may be getting January and they've got an A plus on six or seven tests and they've never got anything lower than an A plus they can begin to have be a little bit more assured not necessarily complacent or careless, but a little bit more assured that they're going to pass that grade because they've been passing it up to this point. And it's the way that you answer such passages like in Matthew 10 where he says that we've got to endure and be faithful unto the end. Well, when you can say, I have endured and I have been faithful unto the end of this trial, I was faithful unto the end of this trial, I was faithful unto the end of this trial, as you build that up, then you can say, I know that I will be faithful unto the end. Now, we're not talking about having faith in your faith. 
It's not being having faith in the fact that you did something, but it's rather faith in the fact that Hebrews 10.38 says, the just shall live by faith, and if you've been living by faith, then it's proof and evidence that you're just, and it's having faith in that fact because you've overcome, because all the other saints overcame. It's having faith in the fact that God has been faithful in your life to give you the word, to give you the grace, to not to allow you the trials and tests and give you the necessary things to overcome and you've met that responsibility, you don't glory in yourself, but you're confident in the fact that he is working and operating in your life and that he will continue to do so. Because he's the author and finisher of your faith. The only way you can have a strong assurance, dear friends, is to continue overcoming. If you start flunking trials, then you're going to start sinking in the sea of despond and you're going to start sinking more and more into the muck of doubt and unbelief and you've got to rise up and start being victorious and make a, get into the habit of overcoming. A habitual overcomer will be greatly encouraged because that's the kind of assurance that God gives. You know, it's one thing. We're not implying that a person that goes and stands up in a public meeting and says, confesses John 3.16, says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. We're not saying tonight that they're not saved. They confess the Lord and they say they've turned their life over to him, sure they're saved. But you see, it's as they sit under the word and they get more knowledge of the word coming in, if they're not being faithful to the word, then questions and doubts start raising, rising up. And then passages like Matthew 7 and Matthew 10, which we mentioned, they start bringing in fear and doubt. And I've had to deal with a lot of people that have said, I'm full of fear and doubt and I'm not sure whether or not I'm even saved. Well, the only way to know that is not by me telling you. Do you want me to say tonight, yeah, you're saved because I think you are? What kind of assurance is that? You're saved because I hear you talking and, well, I think you're a pretty sweet individual or whatever. The only assurance I can give you is the same thing Jesus does, that it is by much trial and tribulation we enter into the kingdom and not by being bombarded with them, but by overcoming them. So start overcoming, and when you start overcoming, then the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit will rise up and He'll do the comforting, and I won't have to. I've never had to comfort anybody that passed the trial. The Holy Spirit does that. But we've had to comfort not a few that have flunked them. And sometimes we don't always comfort. Sometimes we admonish. For your sakes, dear pastor. Because the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I wouldn't tonight have any assurance of my salvation preaching this strong word if we weren't overcoming trials and tests. If we would have flunked the last recent big trial and turned to the arm of the flesh or whatever, well, I couldn't stand here tonight with boldness and preach this word. We could preach it, but we wouldn't. Oh, we'd be rebuking ourselves in the midst of it. But you see, every time a trial comes, and it's not pleasant when you're in the midst of it, after it's overcome, you can say, praise God. Another opportunity that God has shown its faithfulness in my life. And you just kind of say, thank you, Jesus. I just know that you're bringing to completion my faith because you're the author and the finisher of it. Now, I'm going to go on to the third point because as we'll see Sunday morning, the whole message in Hebrews 12 is not just consider those saints in the past that have overcome but you've got to get your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of your faith. But it'll add to what we've already said up to this point. Now, the third thing that Job learned 
and this we'll conclude with, and this is very important, is that Job learned that God was sovereign. Now, there are just a lot of people tonight that are either mixed up on the sovereignty of God, or they just don't know that God is sovereign, and without you knowing tonight that God is sovereign, you will, you will be liable to either change God's word or expect from him a logical explanation for everything that he does. And faith doesn't need anything but the fact that God is sovereign, God is good, God is right, and whatever he chooses to do is right because he's God. And if he doesn't want to explain it to me, that's too bad. Faith says all I need is God saying, because I said so. Because I allowed it. That's it. It doesn't need any more than that. And oh boy, there's a lesson there. Well, I want to show it to you. We're not going to skip it. We could deal with it next week. But Job chapter 42. Look at this. Job learned that God was sovereign. Now, I'm going to deal with, actually, chapters 38 through 41, deal with the fact that God is exposing to Job that he is sovereign. We will look at that. We will look at that under another heading. But I want to show you that if you compare Job 42 and Job 23.19, hold your finger in each one, Job 23.19, I want to show you that Job knew that God was sovereign, but when God got done with Job, Job knew that he was sovereign. And you see, I'm talking about not just Job knew God was sovereign as a theological doctrine, Job knew that God was sovereign and that his faith was built up on the fact that God was sovereign, and Job didn't know anything that was going on. But after he rested in the fact that God was God and that God was faithful, and whatever God does is right, is the way that it's going to be, and accept that fact, and continue faithfully serving him through it, then God inevitably will justify and bring to pass what he has hidden for a short time, like in the case of Job. But boy, is there a lesson here. Job chapter 23. Look at some of the statements that he makes here. Job chapter 23 and verse 19. Job chapter 23 and verse 11. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is of one mind. And who can turn him? And what his soul desires, even that which he, even that he does. Job is saying, God's sovereign. I've been faithful. I've been obedient. I've done what he's told. But God's God and he can do what he wants to do. But Job's saying that, saying, I know God's God. God's sovereign. But after God gets done with him, and we'll look at 38 through 41 later on, but you should have read it by now, when God gets done with him, Job says in chapter 42, I know that thou canst do everything, verse 2. He's saying, now I know you're sovereign. Now I know you're God, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered, therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Too wonderful for me things which I knew not. Or he's expressing there that the things were just beyond what he comprehended. Things were too awesome. He didn't know what he, what he was talking about. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. 
I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee, and I abhor myself and repent in destination. So you see, the educational purpose in the trial is that Job came unto an experiential knowledge of the fact that God was sovereign and learned to rest his faith in that fact. Now, dear friends, there are just a lot of charismatics today that are not willing to accept the fact that God is sovereign and that's all there is to it. They want a logical explanation for everything that happens. And they feel that God is obligated to give them some kind of a logical explanation and when he doesn't, they come up with their own logical explanation and they call that God. Or they will argue with us and say, well, God's sovereign, you can't tell him what to do. God is God, dear friends, and he's going to do what he wants to do and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Isaiah 46 and verse 10. I'd like you to look at just a few passages that show us that God is God and we need to get to the place to where faith says, all I need is the fact that God is God, that whatever he does is right, and in this trial or situation that I'm in, if he does not answer me as to why I'm allowed to go through this thing, we're assuming that he's not already answered you through his word. You know, if a person flunks a trial, God may show them it was because of fear, doubt, worry, unbelief, or whatever. But maybe they have been faithful to him. They've confessed the word. They've acted on the word. They've done everything that they know to do. And all of a sudden, like in Job, everything goes backwards and it's reversed. And God just keeps silent. Faith doesn't demand of God something. Faith doesn't twist the word. Faith says, well, I don't know what's going on, but I know God's God and I know God's in control. And I know that he's right. And someday he will justify it and make it plain. But until then, I'm just going to praise him and worship him anyways. And just rest on the fact that he's God. The worst thing you can do is argue with God. Or tell God, I don't like the way you're doing things. How can the potter, how can the clay rather, crowd to the potter and say, I don't like how you're forming me. Because if the potter got mad, he'd just knock you off the wheel. That's right. The reason why some people don't trust God like they ought is because they don't know who God is. Isaiah chapter 46. Here's just a few places to show you the fact that God's God and that He is the Almighty God and there's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He does what He wants to do. Now you see, He wants to heal us, but it's by the atonement. He wants to prosper us, but it's His way. He said it. Beloved, I wish above all things. Beloved, I want to. I want to heal you. I want to prosper you. I want to protect you. I want to give you peace of mind. I want to give you wisdom. I want to give you instruction. I want to lead you and guide you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. But why can't we let him tell us to, how to do it by saying, Lord, you do it the way that you want to do it. Rev 46, 8 through 10. Look at this. Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye sinners. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times. The things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And he is. He's going to do it all. But it's his pleasure. 
And then over in Daniel, chapter 4, and verse 35. And if you've got a pencil, I'm going to give you a lot of places tonight that I don't know if we've ever read in this body or not, which point to the sovereignty of God. So you write them down and get them into your thinking. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are repudiated as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? How come you're doing things the way that you're doing them? No one can say that. Because God is over them all. And you know what he does to people that begin to start questioning what he's doing? He laughs at them. Now you see, Job learned that God was God and that what he did was right. This goes back to the original test that we've already laid out and covered and made clear that Job's trial was not because of fear. What was it? It was because it was a test of his character. Remember, Satan, or rather God, pointed Job out to Satan and said, Satan, have you ever considered Job? This was the test of his character. But you see, Job didn't know that all the way through. Job had been righteous, but he didn't understand why the affliction then would be upon him. He didn't admit he was flawless, but no sin that he had done would have been worthy of totally wiping him out of everything. And so, therefore, his friends kept saying, Job, you're a sinner. He kept saying, no, I'm not. I don't know why all this has happened. But I know that God's God and whatever he does is right. And after he finally came to the place where that was not just a knowing it in the sense where he said, I know God's sovereign. But he actually said, I know that God is sovereign. Chapter 42. And I know that he can do anything he wants. And I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, then God turned the captivity of Job and justified it. But he had to get to that place to whereby he was willing to accept the circumstances, whatever they were, even though he had no explanation for them, to accept the fact that God was still in complete control of his life, and that God was God, and that even though it appeared like everything was wrong, yet in reality it was all right. It was all right for God to have done what he did. God was perfectly righteous and just. In fact, he was very righteous and just in what he did. He, he didn't do something derogative. He pointed Job out. He said, I've got so much confidence in Job. He is such a good guy, Satan. That's something that we look at and say, praise God, that's really neat that the Lord did that. You know, that's really commendable. But Job didn't know that. So all he had to do was take my faith that God was good. God was right. God was just. He had to take by faith that God was sovereign and that he would do what he wanted to do. And when he finally said, okay, I accept it, then the trial was up. Now, we have people that raise questions today. Like, for example, how could a God of love and mercy ever allow something like that to happen? Stop thinking about it. How could, ever a, God, how could a, a God of love and mercy ever allow something like that to happen to Job? Isn't God more pitiful than that? Doesn't God have more compassion upon his people? And then people will reply back, Why well, he sure does. And then they'll point you to passages in the Word. Like Psalm 103.13. God is very merciful and full of compassion. 
and loving. But let's understand the whole revelation of the Bible tonight. It's true that God has pity upon people and is very merciful. And I'm sure that he hurt with Job in what was going on. He didn't necessarily like what he did or what he allowed, but he knew in the long run it would be in Job's best interest. Psalm 103 and verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And then an even better one is over in Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 9. Isaiah 63 and verse 9. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie, so he was their Savior. And then this phrase, this verse, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love. And in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them, and he carried them all the days of old. You read passages like that, which show that God is pitiful, and God is merciful, and God is loving. But people will read that and they'll say, if God is so pitiful and merciful and loving, why would he allow some of these things? And then they will point to different things. Why would he allow my husband to get involved with that other woman and divorce me? Why would he allow an infant in the world to be born maimed or deformed or why would God allow why would God allow God's God of love why would he ever allow anything like that why would a God of love ever allow Job to go through such afflictions like that I thought God was pitiful and merciful let's be honest tonight we know the devil did it but God allowed it God's sovereign remember God was in complete control. The devil is like a monkey on the string with God. God is in complete control. So why would God allow something like that? You see, I've got my wording right. I didn't say God did it. But why would he even allow it? Why would he even allow Satan to fight? Or we could go back to a more basic question. When people raise questions like that, we could reply back, well, why would God allow sin in his good world? Why would God allow sin and filth and corruption in a good garden. You know what I mean? God made the garden of, Ad- garden of Eden, put Adam and Eve in it. And through one sin, everything was turned topsy-turvy and all kinds of filth and corruption came in. Why didn't God just up and root it out and clean it out and straighten it back the way it was when He made it? He made it beautiful and perfect. Why would He allow something like that? Why would He even allow the devil to come in to tempt Eve? You ever asked yourself a question like that? I thought God was so loving and merciful. That just sounds other than God. Well, there are some people that say, well, the reason why God has evil in this world is because He can't do anything about getting it out. Which is utterly ridiculous and about as foolish as you can get. Because, again, looking at more passages that show that God is sovereign... And that God is God. God is the mighty God, friends. (laughs) To say tonight that God couldn't get evil out and that God couldn't straighten out all those situations we could have mentioned, you don't know the God of the Bible. God does anything He wants. Jeremiah chapter 32. Look at passages like this. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power. 
and stretched out arm. And there is nothing that is too hard for thee. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers unto the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Another passage, like over in First Chronicles, chapter 29. We could look at New Testament the same way, but First Chronicles 29, here's another one. God's God, friends. He is the almighty God. To think that God couldn't do anything, you don't know the God of the Bible. First Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Satan is defeated. He's a defeated foe. And dear friends, he was defeated even before the, the cross because the cross was before the foundations of the world. The devil's never been a big problem that God couldn't straighten out. As if he couldn't take care of it. The way people are implying. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and we praise and glorify thy name. Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 6. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? And on and on and on. You just keep on reading that one. Or over in Psalm chapter 2. And this is a good one. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4. This talks about how that the kings and the rulers and the big mighty men of the earth, they rise up to come against God and His Word and His anointed. And it says in verse 4, He sits in the heavens and he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Can you imagine them trying to do something to sway God? Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Satan to God is like a fly to you. Anybody here have any problems with a fly? They may be a little bit quick and swift. But if you get one sitting there long enough, does it really take all the power and might that you've got to smash it? No, it's nothing. Done. Sometimes not even that. And the devil, with all of his power, with all of his might, and we should consider him a worthy adversary, is like a fly to the devil. At any time, he could just... God's no, the devil is no problem to God. So we raise the question, well, if the devil is no problem to God, and God could take care of the devil and all the evil things that he does, why doesn't he? Well, because God has limited. He has put self-imposed limitations on himself. For what purpose? So that his children can be allowed to be tempted, tested, tried for some particular purpose or reason. So that they can overcome and mature and grow and all the very things they're going to look to. Because 
the character of us, our character as a Christian is something that has to be developed. When we're saved, we're ushered into the kingdom, but but we've got a character that has to be developed and matured, and that can only come about through temptation, testing, and trials. It's not enough to say I'm a Christian. A person with a shady character, you know, they say that guy's a shady character. Well, why is he a shady character? Because he does shady things. He steals, he lies, or whatever. That means that whenever he was tempted, he just yielded to the temptation. So his character is developed, and it is known by what he did, what he has done, or what he's doing. And our character as a Christian has to be known and demonstrated, or we could call it tonight our testimony, that we're going to be known, just like overcomers. The overcoming church, for example, is going to be known for the fact that the Holy Spirit leads and controls everything in it. The Holy Spirit is the one that develops and brings faith. To be an overcoming church, we need to be known for the fact that we're not a denominationalized, organized, incorporated system, and that our faith grows exceedingly, and the love toward every one of us abounds. And those three things are in the Bible. And we've got to have all three. But the character, our character is something that has to be developed and matured, and so God allows trials and tests for some particular purpose. He may allow a trial so you can rise up in spiritual warfare against it. He may allow a trial so that you can patiently endure and get patient endurance through it and overcome it. But there may just be some trials and tests that are allowed to come your way when God says, I'm not going to let you know anything about what's going on, but I just expect you to follow me blindly. Blindly follow me in service to my word. Follow after me with no reason at all why you may be going through those trials or tests. But follow me and serve me faithfully just because I'm God, you're the clay, and I'm the one that can tell you what to do and what not to do, and if you're my child, you're going to submit to it. His children don't submit to it. Or, I'm sorry, his children do submit to it. It's his non-children that don't submit to it. The sinner. They don't submit to it. So as a result, because they don't submit to it, then he's going to end up finally punishing them, judging them. But his children submit. Dear friends, faith, like Job, is willing to trust God even when there's no explanation, no reason why things ought to be the way that they are. It will say, in essence, well, God is God. God is sovereign. Whatever he does is just and right and perfect. And even though I don't understand it, I'm going to accept that and know that this situation will be vindicated. That's what Job did. It was vindicated. And we're told to be encouraged by the fact that it was vindicated. Then in our lives, it will be vindicated. James chapter 5. He says, you've seen the endurance of Job. Behold, we count them blessed which endure. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord was pitiful and full of tender mercy, and he was, but he wasn't at the beginning. It was at the end of the trial. So likewise, we're to be encouraged that God is faithful and true to his word and that he is just and good, and when something appears not to be so good, that God will be good. But even though we may not understand all the circumstances, we must say with Job, 
So he slay me, yet while I trust it. It is to say with Job, God is sovereign, God is God. I have absolutely no right whatsoever to question God, to argue with God, to imply to God that what he is doing is wrong. The only thing I have to do is submit to it by faith and believe that it will all work out again. In a way, we're talking about what? Romans 8.28. But we're phrasing it in a different form. 